Good morning, Servants Church. So glad you guys could make it here today. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel again, still. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 6, we're going to pick up where Stephen left off, looking at finishing up the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus setting up for his disciples how they are to build their lives. So Luke chapter 6 is where we want to be. Starting at verse 27. We're going to look at verses 27 through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 6. Um, and just to make sure everyone knows, I forgot to announce. I always forget the announcement. I forgot to announce that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the message. So if you have to sneak away to get your, your uh, things at home, then feel free to do that. Um, yeah, hopefully that'll be in about 30 minutes time. We'll see. I've been known to go long occasionally. You never know. Luke chapter 6. I want to just not read the whole section. I want to start off with the last bit of this section and just read verse 46 to 49 before we pray again and get into it together. Jesus speaking, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house, his house on, on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So, Father, we, we, we do pray again as we've heard these sobering words that you would help us to not walk in fear, but walk in faith. That, Lord, we wouldn't be afraid of our own failures. We wouldn't be afraid of our own powerlessness, Lord. But instead, by faith, we look to you and know if you've called us to this, you will, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to walk in it. And, Father, I pray you'd help us, too, to see again that in your commands, there's the reasons why. They show why we need to trust you. So I pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to talk today about the truth that we are meant to build on. In fact, I, I want to, I read that last section because I want us to recognize that this house metaphor, this building metaphor that Jesus is using, this really is not so much about, it's not meant to kind of illustrate uh, the wisdom of what Jesus says, but the authority of what Jesus says. It's, it's, it's meant to underscore that we are called to build our lives on Jesus. And, and here's the truth. Everybody is building their life on something, on some sort of authority. Everyone. So, so no matter who you are listening to this this morning or this afternoon or several days from Sunday, you need to know everyone builds their life on some sort of authority. Maybe their authority is personal experience and pleasure. What seems best for me? Maybe the authority is, is the consensus of the scientific community, what they have observed through empirical knowledge. Maybe the authority is, is just collective wisdom, things that they've kind of gathered through many people or who their group, who their tribe says, or what their tribe says should be authoritative. But everybody is building their life on some sort of authority. And here Jesus has the audacity to say, it's me. I'm the authority. 
All other authority is sinking sand. It's not going to work to build your life. Now, what we're going to see today is, is really Jesus wanting us to understand, wanting the, the readers, the, the first hearers to understand, that he's calling us to a standard that reflects what he's done for us. In the kids' video today, we saw the, the Abbott family uh, skillfully uh, reminded us that Barnabas uh, was this great missionary, the this, this son of encouragement was Barnabas. And God sent him to, he and Paul, to the Gentiles. And in reaching these non-Jews, he brought the Gentiles into, grafted them into God's kingdom. In fact, Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to this. He says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, notice, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. So, so understand when they would build a foundation, uh, lay a foundation for a house in that day, in biblical times, it wasn't about kind of putting up wood forms and pouring in a bunch of cement. Or stacking some bricks and then putting wood across it. No, the strongest buildings were built with a stone foundation. And that stone foundation had to fit against the measure of the cornerstone. So they would cut this first stone, the strongest stone. This, this stone would set the standard for the width and the breadth and the depth of the rest of the foundation. And Paul's saying, and when it comes to God building his house, when it comes to us building our lives, Christ is the cornerstone. And we are building together, Jew and Gentile. Now, what's interesting about this is that we see, in, starting in verse 27, that Jesus begins to instruct us about building with a pretty, pretty amazing command, really a counterintuitive command. He says in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, speaking to all the disciples that day, saying, okay, if you're paying attention and listen up here, he says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. I'm reminded of, uh, of a story many years ago when we were living in Sprouston and uh, the neighbor, one of the neighbor kids used to come over and play at our house and uh, and I remember Bubba and Eddie were having an argument about something, and and one one of the uh, one of his uh, the sisters said, "Now come on, Bubba, love your enemies," or something like that. And Eddie says, well, "I'm not going to love my enemies. That's stupid." Honest kid, because that's the way we most of us would feel, isn't it? Love your enemies. Why would you love your enemies? Now, as Christians, as church-going folk, we hear "love your enemies" and go, "Yes, love your enemies." We say in a, in a very religious way. But we, we forget that this is something, we, 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 we kind of give lip services because this is something we think we're never going to have to face. Or we think we're only going to have to face like uh, loving our enemies, why someone might treat us badly at work or, or make us feel a bit foolish because we believe in Jesus. And the way we're going to love our enemies is to still be, well, we'll be nice. But Jesus is really... Man, he's raising the standard in a big way. He says, when it says love your enemies, he's talking about a love that is generous to his enemies. This is more than just avoiding vengeance. This is actually pursuing their good. Notice what he says. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And in case you didn't know what do good means, he spells that out for us. Verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hate you. Oh, I'm sorry, those who abuse you. 
Uh, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. I mean, this can't just be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be nice. No, this is a seriously heavy command. In fact, this is more than just, you know, I think I'll invest in a relationship to this person who seems to be antagonistic. I'm going to invest in them. No, this is, I'm going to put them above myself. I want you to think about that for a second. The, 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 the height of the standard that Jesus sets for us, that he says to us, we are to love, uh, we are to show a love that is generous to our enemies. And in case we wonder, okay, maybe he just means people who we feel like are enemies, but they'll, they'll eventually love us back. He wants to make it really clear in the next set of verses that this has got to be love that's more than just reciprocal. Love that you get back. Look at verse 31. This is called the, uh, the golden rule. At least it came to be called the golden rule around the 16th century. He, he says this in verse 31. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That sounds like, you know, some profound wisdom. In fact, there are, you know, actually there are other religious groups and other uh, teachers uh, of philosophies who taught something similar even before Jesus taught this. But Jesus, again, qualifies this. He quantifies this in a way that makes sure that we know it's more than just being, it's more than reciprocity. Let's look what he says. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom uh, you, you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. In other words, Jesus is making it clear. Listen, he's talking about something that's more than just becoming better sinners. Or maybe we might say lesser sinners. We're lesser sinners than others because we try to, we really try to love. No, he's calling his disciples to demonstrate a supernatural love. He goes on, verse 35. But he says, love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. Notice what he says. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Now, in saying this, you'll be sons of the most high. This is a huge thing. He's basically would say to the Jews who would have heard this, they would have thought to themselves, I'm already a son of the Most High. I'm already, we have one Father. He's chosen us. We're part of the chosen people. I'm of Abraham's sons. But there's more to it than this. Listen, he's saying this is more than just the reward of being chosen. This is you leading to an inheritance as sons. This is your reward. You have an inheritance as sons. Great study to do. Go through the New Testament and see where the, the Bible talks about inheritance or that we are, how we inherit with Christ. It really will blow your mind, not only about what that means, about what we inherit, but also how, how we know that we're those who are co-inheritors with Christ. It's an amazing thing to think about. The, the, the point is, he goes on to say in verse 35, he says, For he is, that is, God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Therefore, he says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And this word merciful means compassionate in the Greek version. But this is the word, a word, that if it was translated like in the Hebrew New Testament, it would be that word kased. The Hebrew word kased, which is covenantal love. 
In other words, he's saying, this is more than God being merciful. This is more than God just saying, I'll hold back the consequences that you deserve, the bad stuff you deserve. This is God saying, I am committed to you in covenantal love. Now, this is important. It's important because the whole thing that we need to see in these commands of Jesus is, is that how we choose to love other people shows what we understand of how God loves us. How we love shows who loves us. No, no, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying how we love makes us lovable. That's not at all what I'm saying. We don't love so that God loves us. No, we'll talk about more of that towards the end. No, we're talking about, do we understand how God has loved us? Listen to this. This is the book of Romans, the way the Apostle Paul talks about God's love. He says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless... We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't do what was right before God. We didn't even want to. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he's saying, I'm calling you to do what I've already done. The very incarnation of God himself, Jesus, God the Son, taken on human flesh, that very incarnation is God saying, I love this world that doesn't deserve it. I love these people who have made them my enemies. I am moving towards them. I am calling them to me. And he calls us to the same love. In fact, listen, so that we don't, again, just moralize this and think, yes, that's a really, it's a better love. I'll try to live that love. I understand this, okay? This is what the Bible says in 1 John. This is what John said, the beloved disciple. In 1 John chapter 4, he said, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, this, that which satisfies the wrath of God against us. That which pleases God. He goes on to say in the same chapter, we love because he first loved us. Now, now, now here's the thing. I, what I want to say to you, and in fact, I'm going to say this and then I want to I qualify it. If you don't know how much God loves you. If you don't recognize that you've been loved when you were an enemy of God, you will never love your enemies. Now, I want to qualify this because I've heard this taught as in, if you're struggling to love people, it's probably because you just don't know how loved you are. So think about how loved you are. Now, there's truth in this, but the problem is, it's all about, yes, I'm a victim. If I just knew how much I was loved, then I'd really love my enemies. But actually, this is not the tone that Jesus brings us in. He brings us in, 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 a, in a stronger tone. He says, he's kind of saying, I'm giving you commands. Remember the context. Remember the last section, the metaphor of the house. I am calling you to do exactly what I say. And he's calling us to this so that we kind of realize what a big deal it is that God loves us. It's a funny thing. When we, when we are mistreated that we begin to cry out for justice. Have you noticed that? Like justice doesn't really bother us when it happens to somebody else. or not that bad, unless it's something really, really bad. 
If it's really, really bad, then it'll bother us. But often when justice happens, or injustice happens <coughs> all over the world, we just kind of go, oh, interesting. And we kind of move on. But when it happens closer to home, then we're like, man, something has to happen. Where's God in all this? When you're on holiday and a beautiful, at a, on a beautiful Caribbean beach and you're relaxed and you're enjoying yourself, you're not thinking, where's God in the injustice of the world? You know why? Because you don't care about the injustice of the world. You only care about your pleasure. But when injustice happens to you, where's God? This is how we are. So, so here's what happens. When, when Jesus is kind of saying to those who think, oh, you must be the Messiah, you're God's chosen king, we want to follow you. He's saying, okay, good. you want to follow me? Here's the deal. Love your enemies. Because when they treat you bad and you say, I'm going to still lay down my life for them, then you're getting why I came. Now the truth is nobody could do this until after Jesus died and rose from the, again, rose from the dead and sent the sent spirit, really. But the, but the point is, he's, he's wanting us to see this. Now, now, really, the same kind of theme is carrying throughout this whole section. But I, let, let's talk about what he, he goes really about kind of how we love to how we judge. If how we love shows uh, who loves us or our understanding of who loves us, then how we judge shows whose opinion matters most to us. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, judge not. Or you, uh, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, and with what measure you use will be measured back to you. Now, this idea of putting it into the lap, uh, it's, it's kind of a picture of a first century marketplace when they would go to get their spices and so on, and they would have those things measured. And what they had was they kind of had the long part of their outer shirt. They would kind of fold it up over their arm and kind of tuck it in, and it would create this big pocket. And the idea was, says, okay, I'll take one cup of such and such. And so they'd scoop the cup in and they'd shake the cup so it would settle down. And they put a little bit more and they'd shake it so it settled down. They might tap it and then scoop a little more so it was kind of overflowing. And then they'd pour it into your little pocket thing, into your lap, so to speak. That's the, that's the picture. And so when he says this, he's, he's wanting uh, these guys to understand something. He's wanting them to understand, listen... You would want to be treated in a certain way at the marketplace. You'd want to make sure you got your full cup's worth, so to speak, and even overflowing a bit. You'd want that. And in Jesus saying this, he's, he's again, in this authoritative way, with his authoritative words, he's saying, this is how it works. This is how justice comes forth, is when God brings it. So, so the idea here is not so much he's saying never judge as in make a judgment call. He's not saying never condemn as in recognizing somebody's condemned. Because in other scriptures, we know there's times when we have to do that. We have to be discerning. We have to, we have to love someone enough to say to them, listen, apart from Christ, you are condemned, just like I was. He's not refuting that. What he's saying is this. Listen, he says really clearly, with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Because here's the problem. We tend to judge in a way that excuses our own bad behavior. So, so to use the cup metaphor, we scoop the cup into the spice, we shake it once and go, you know what? That guy never even shakes it. I'm better than him. Boop. And we poke it, put, stick it into the pocket, Right? Or maybe we're even better than that. We, we, we get the cup, we shake it once, scoop it again, and we shake it twice. Look at that. I'm better than both those guys. Boop, stick it in the pocket. Look at me. 
And we judge in a way, listen, we judge in a way, comparing ourselves horizontally to make ourselves look better. And Jesus says, if you, you do that, if you do that, you're going to be judged by that measure. Because if your idea is, I want to be better than somebody else, or I want to look better than somebody else, guess what? There's already some, always someone better than you. Uh, I didn't grow up with my mom, but I did live with her for about a nine-month period. I love my mom, but it was a horrible nine months. Because my dad was not strict at all. We were feral children, did whatever we wanted. My mom was like on it. No, you can't put that poster in your room. No, you can't just go stay out. Yes, your grades have to be this high. Da 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 da. Ooh, hated it. And I used to always, I used to always kind of judge my own case before her. Come on, mom. No one else has a standard. And she would say, "Don't." Oh gosh, she would say, "Don't compare yourself to the worst. Compare yourself to the best." <laughs> oh, I hated when she'd say that. But she was right, really. Because she would say, okay, fine. So you're not like your drug addict friends. Good for you, Johnny. But that's not the standard. The standard's bigger than that. See, when it comes to judging, we should want God's judgment uh, above all. You know why? Because when God judges, listen, even though ours tends to be excusing our bad behavior, God's judgment is about blessing those, listen, who don't deserve it. That's his judgment. This is what he's calling us to. He's saying, don't condemn people. Want them to be blessed. Why? Because they deserve it? Because really, they're not that bad? No. Because they're worse than you think, and the only way they're going to make it is if you show mercy. We want God's judgment, the way God judges us. Now, this, this is one of those verses where, where people love to, to claim that God's going to give us more than we've given, so bring your tithe and offering. So I'm going to do that right now. You guys ready? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Because really, this is not so much about, this is not about material prosperity at all, really, this context. It's about us recognizing whose judgment we should really want. Besides, Stephen made it clear that blessed are the poor. Amen. So then he says this, Jesus says this in verse 39. Listen, he also told them a parable. He says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will he not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, verse 40, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, if you're looking at the notes, uh, you see that this, the second sort of sub-point here is we follow Jesus' example above all. I just want to be clear. Jesus is not necessarily pointing to himself. What he's doing is giving a warning about, be careful whose example you're following, whose standard you're going after. Because guess what? Whatever standard you go, out there, go after, that's as high as it's going to get. Now, we should look for godly examples to follow. The, the scripture specifically uh, directs us that way. It says, look for godly people that you can note and follow their example. We, are, we need to set examples for each other. Don't get me wrong. But we, no one sets the standard for what God wants except Jesus Christ himself. He sets the standard. So if we're going to build our lives on him and his words, then listen, we follow his example above all. This is especially important when we're talking about in the context of loving your enemies. How we treat other people. Then he says in verse 41, 
Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Now, this is actually comedy. Jesus is being funny here. This is humor. I mean, he's being, making a serious point, but he's using humor, absurdity. You can picture someone kind of going, with a huge kind of log out of their eye, going, hey, stand still. I'm going to try to get that. You got a splinter there. I mean, it's absurdity. He says, <coughs> verse 42, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck uh, that is in your eye. Let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your, that is in your brother's eye. So he's not discouraging. Listen, Jesus is not discouraging us helping a brother. He's emphasizing that we need to be humble enough to destroy, expose and destroy our own hypocrisy if we're going to actually be a help to somebody. This is what he's talking about. Now, now, now to, to get really practical with this, listen, Paul kind of talks about a similar thing in Galatians. Listen to this, Galatians chapter 6. He says, Brother, uh, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. Bear with one another's burdens, or bear one another's burdens, sorry, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, then, he, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Do you see in those practical verses how, how Paul is saying something similar to Jesus, saying, listen, yes, you need to help people who have the specks in their eye, but it's only going to work if you recognize, you know, i got to get this log out first. I can't think of myself as like, oh, I have no specks in my eye. Well, no, i got this big one i got to take out so that I can deal with this stuff. There's that, that commitment to help one another, but also that self-examination that's necessary. Now, this is important because this is what motivates us to show mercy to people is because we've been shown so much mercy. We don't want to condemn anybody. You know why? Because we haven't been condemned and we've only not been condemned because of Jesus. Again, this is not about not discerning. We do have to discern. But it's about not condemning. There's a difference. Uh, you know, uh, when uh, our brother Joe left uh, here, here, left from being a, an elder here to going into the Orthodox Church, there were a lot of people who wanted me to soundly condemn him, to say he is not, he's apostate, he's no longer a Christian. And it was tempting to do so because I was hurt and I was kind of, like everyone else, shocked. And, and, I, and I was honest about the fact that, you know, he... Uh, he's believing something that, in my mind, could be another gospel. But knowing what I know about orthodoxy, it's not another Jesus. It's not. And it makes me think to myself, okay, can I really condemn him? I can't. Do I want him to turn back? Do I want him to, to come back to the gospel of grace and embrace that? Yes. Yes. In fact, my fear for those who have left the gospel of grace for things like orthodoxy or Catholicism, 
they often have an understanding of grace and are frustrated with the superficiality of the free evangelical church. And so they're looking for something substantial and uh, uh, and, and something that's, that's rooted in, in a long history. And so they go that direction. But they still understand they need grace. The problem is most people in those systems don't. They think grace is just what you get because you did the right religious rituals. So there's a difference between discerning that these could be different gospels and condemning anyone who doesn't believe just like me is gone. I'm not the final judge, Jesus is. So would I warn my brother Joe or, or Will or any of the other friends that have left this? Yes, I would. But also love them. I'd also hope that they would know Christ in truth and be willing to come back. Do you see the difference? This is hard, isn't it? It's, how do we do this? The, the only way it's going to happen, folks, is if we say, Lord, it's your opinion that matters. People might think I'm too harsh to Joe. People might think I'm too lax to Joe. But guess what? What do you think, Lord? What's your opinion about how I'm judging this person? Am I looking at your scripture rightly and dealing with this? Am I being lazy and just trying to like be a lovey-dovey and include everybody? How, how am I dealing with this, Lord? Because what you say is what matters. It's your judgment that matters. You're the authority. Now, closing up with these last couple pictures that we see starting in verse 43. Jesus gives us what he loves that he loves. Jesus loves the mixed metaphors. He would get a flat D if he was studying English literature. But you know what? He's not. He's the Lord of Lords, so he can mix metaphors if he wants to. He says in verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So two, two metaphors. Tree, the tree and fruit metaphor, the heart and mouth metaphor. And he uses them together. Why? Because they go together. The point he makes with both is, as our actions reveal our hearts. So, sometimes we're really bad about this as believers. Sometimes we'll say things like, well, you know, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. Have you ever thought about that? Oh, I didn't do the right thing, but God knows my heart. Yeah. And your actions kind of betray where that heart might be. We need to be more sober about this kind of stuff. But also, when he gives this last metaphor that we read before, I want you to notice, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? No, do what I says. Notice he says, when he talks about the person who is uh, the wise man building his house on the rock, he says in verse 48, he's like a man building his house, notice, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. See, our digging demonstrates our faith. Lord, Lord this is deep and difficult stuff. Who actually is, is part of your chosen people and who's not? Who's, who's, who really believes and who doesn't? Lord, how, how do we discern this stuff? When, when am I loving and when am I, when am I uh, uh, you know, risking a, a witness about who you are? I mean, I, I don't know how to do this, Lord. I have to dig deep and make sure my life is on the foundation of who you are and what you say.
Now let's get really practical and think how we can respond to this. We're going to go to the Lord's table in just a minute. So you guys watching at home, if you want to go get the elements right now, remember the Lord's table. But I want to talk about some stuff, really practical stuff. Coming out of lockdown is going to expose the damage that we've all had done to us through isolation. We need to kind of prepare for this. I, I, you know, I really, I remember saying in the first lockdown, you guys probably remember me saying this, oh, just wait till we come back together. It's going to be one big hug fest. It probably isn't. It's going to be like, uh, should I, should I not hug? Do I talk to this person? Oh, I remember we used to have great conversations and I haven't spoken to them in six months. It's going to be that kind of awkwardness, weirdness, difficulty. We have some who've moved away, like, like physically moved away, and their absence is finally going to feel more pronounced. We're going to realize, we're, we're going to feel that, guys, in a way that it's like the loss coming right back to us again. How many of us have lost family members and friends, many of whom maybe we, could, we try to tell ourselves, well, they were older, this was probably going to happen, but we feel that loss because we weren't there. And we feel it more when we're together again. Some have kind of widened their doctrinal influences. They, they've kind of watched. One of the things I've heard is a lot of people listen to a whole bunch of guys on, on YouTube and uh, podcasts and stuff. And a lot of this is really good. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be too negative about this. A lot of it can be really good. But the, here's the problem. With that comes kind of new ideas and sometimes a return to previous ones and, you know, we've pretty experienced, us here at Servant Church, we've experienced a unity in diversity because we've come back around Jesus so that even if we don't agree on things, it's okay. We agree on Jesus and we're seeking him and we're wanting to, to test all things through his word. And, but then we're not together. And we're listening to this guy say this and that person say this and this woman say that. And what can happen is we're going to be tempted to begin to emphasize those doctrinal differences instead of endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit as we pursue the unity of the faith. This is what's going to happen. Some are going to feel, some do feel, maybe you're watching this and you feel completely engulfed by doubt. Gosh, this just seems, you know, like it's bigger than God. Or, or maybe you're just even consumed with apathy. And think, what's the point? Is it even worth coming back? Many feel disconnected relationally from Servants Church. They, they miss it, but they're also disconnected. And because of that, they're kind of intimidated about having to start all over. It feels like that's what we're going to have to do. I bring these things up not to be Downer Debbie, okay? <laughs> I bring this up because these are realities in the situation that we've gone through. And guess what? Those who are our friends and brothers are sometimes going to feel like enemies. Now, when I say enemy, remember, think about this again in the sense that we were enemies to God. The fact that we're enemies to God doesn't mean that before we were Christians, all we just thought about was that God's horrible. God's horrible. Some of us may have been this way, but most of us just didn't think about him. And it's going to feel that way. We're going to feel like enemies when people come back to church. And what does Jesus tell us to do with our enemies? Love them. Move toward them. Do good to them. 
Because we tend to think the enemies are out here, out there, and we in here, we always love each other, don't we? Not necessarily. But when we remember how the Lord has loved us, by what standard the Lord judges us, by the authority of the word that he gives to us, then we're able to say by his Holy Spirit, okay, Lord, if you so loved me, you can empower me to so love my brothers and sisters. And in so loving my brothers and sisters through the season of reconnecting and reevaluating and rebooting, Lord, if we love that way, then the world will know we're your disciples. That's the truth we want to build our lives on. Some feel these different ways. Many feel disconnected. But all of us, listen, all of us need to remember the God who loves us. All of us need to remember that he has called us to build our lives on Jesus. Not on servants' church. Not on our home groups not on the kind of ministries we think we want to have, not on the kind of families that we're even wanting to have. No, we build our lives on Jesus. He's the foundation. With that in mind, get your elements, get your unleavened bread, get your crushed grape. You who are with us here, you can go ahead and take those funky plastic lids off, get that ready. But let's prepare our hearts Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten son. And just as Moses was lifted up, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so he was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up. Lifted up so as that one who becomes sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, we want to remember you, Lord Jesus, what you've done for us, how you've purchased that position for us by your death and resurrection. And we want to remember that you're going to come back for us soon. And when you come back for us, Lord, we are going to be made like you. We're finally going to love the way you do. We long for that. And Lord, we pray as we remember what you've done for us, we would remember the promise of your Holy Spirit that because we've been washed clean by your blood, we are vessels that can be filled, that are filled with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to be filled to overflowing with your Holy Spirit that we might love the way you love. Teach us to do this. Lord, we've failed in this so often but you've always succeeded. Thank you, Jesus, for your success. Thank you for your life. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for hope. We do this now in remembrance of you. Let's all partake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you guys for, for coming out this morning. Thank you for joining us online, those who did, uh, especially those who watched online uh, live with us. We're so glad you could, you could be with us. So God bless you guys. We'll see you soon.